0: In 1999, the National Institutes of Health sponsored a groundbreaking study called REVEAL, Risk Evaluation and Education for Alzheimer's Disease. It was the first study to disclose Alzheimer's risk to healthy patients, and it wound up being a life-changing experience for its lead investigator, a Harvard-trained neurologist. In fact, it convinced him of his need to go back to school? Hello and welcome to Data Point, the podcast about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest this week is that neurologist, Dr. Robert Green, except that now he's not only board certified in neurology, he went through his second residency at Harvard Medical School in medical genetics 25 years after his first. Dr. Green leads the Genomes to People Research Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Broad Institute, and Harvard Medical School. G2P, as it's known, conducts cutting-edge empirical research in translating genomics into health. He's also a co-founder of Genome Medical, a young company focused on bringing genomic medicine to everyday care. And finally, he's an engaging and fascinating guy. Get ready to explode some myths about genomics with Dr. Robert Green. Robert, thanks so much for being with us on Datapoint today. Great to be here, Greg. I uh, have been eager to have this conversation. As you uh, are aware, we have done a few mini-series that relate to genomics on this show, and uh, so I've been really eager to have you as a guest uh, to hear about some of the work that you're doing. Um, But what I'd love to do to start off, I always like to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of who you are before we get deep into your work. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit of background and, you know, some of the some of the signposts that pointed you to where you are today?
1: Sure thing, Greg. I uh, grew up the son of a of a doctor and always uh, wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and got excited about academics when I was in medical school because I love the idea of discovering new science. I trained initially to become a neurologist, and I got very interested in higher cortical functions, language, and memory and uh, worked in the area of Alzheimer's disease for about 15 years, doing clinical trials, trying to discover new medications to treat patients with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually ran some of the high profile clinical trials in that arena that failed. And it was very frustrating, um, but we always thought we were on the verge of a treatment. But Mm. one of the things that became gradually more clear was that the causes of Alzheimer's disease were more and more unveiled to be genetic. Mm. And it was actually through that route that I got interested in genetics. It was like, wow, if genetics is really behind this disease, what do we need to know about the genetics of diseases in general? And uh, while I was still a neurologist, I started a project called Reveal, where we disclosed APOE genotype, which, as you know, puts you at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. And 24% of the population are carrying a a, a genetic variant that doesn't determine that they're going to get Alzheimer's disease, but puts them at increased risk. And at that time, everybody was saying, oh, no, you can't possibly share that information because people will overreact. They'll go jump off the roof. This is a very dangerous piece of information. And I I just didn't believe that. I thought people had a right to uh, Mm. genetic risk information if they wanted it and if they understood it. So we conducted this NIH study called the REVEAL study, Risk uh, Education and Evaluation for Alzheimer's Disease. And it demonstrated absolutely clearly that people who chose to learn about their APOE were absolutely okay with the result, even when they found out that they were carrying the risk variant. Wow. So that's not to say people didn't get thrown a bit, momentarily upset for a few people that really weighed on them. But overall, the vast majority of people who came into the study, and by the end of 15 years, we'd put 1,000 people through this study, rigorously studying their uh, psychological state, what they did with the information, how they understood the information, whether it made a difference if the information was presented by a learned genetics expert or by a brochure or online, mm. uh, we did all sorts of things, We really teased apart the details of what it meant to learn about APOE as, as kind of a petri dish for genetic disclosure. And uh, this was really a turning point, I think, for us and for the field. Um, for us, it, uh, it really opened the door and opened my eyes to the idea that there were a lot of myths out there about genetics and genetic disclosure. Mm-hmm. And for the field, it came just at the moment before direct-to-consumer genetic testing got launched. And so it was extremely relevant to the question of how were people gonna understand results that they were suddenly getting from the three leading direct-to-consumer genetics companies that all launched in 2007. And that was, of Mm -hmm. course, 23andMe, Navigenics, and DecodeMe. And those three companies all featured APOE as part of their offering. So it was extremely salient to the moment. And with that, uh, Greg, I got invited to all these cool conferences, and I got to meet all these cool entrepreneurs. And I suddenly realized there was a world of interest in genetics that I had never really been exposed to. Right. And I did something at that point. I'd, I'd climbed my way up the academic ladder. I was a full professor of neurology. And I did something that was pretty unheard of. I stepped away, I took a leave of absence from my job, went back to residency and trained in medical genetics. Wow. I had attendings who were significantly younger than I was, I'm sure. and there sure. I was there I was, an old guy in the neonatal intensive care unit. You know, the last clinical work I'd been doing was taking care of. Older geriatrics adults with Alzheimer's disease, and suddenly I was in the neonatal intensive care unit taking care of preemies with metabolic disease. It was quite a shocking switch. I can imagine. uh, The people who trained me couldn't have been more supportive, they couldn't have been better at, at, at the kind of education. I did two residencies in the Harvard Medical School system, 25 years apart. And um, came at the end of it uh, board certified now in both neurology and medical genetics. And uh, it turns out my clinical trials training in neurology really prepared me to do some original things in genomics, which we can talk about, but uh, that's sort of the story of how I got here.
0: It is, and it's a fascinating story. And I have to ask, just because I'm tremendously curious, knowing that you had this interest in genomics and that you saw where you saw the opportunity that existed there. Was it really necessary to go back and get another medical certification in order to pursue that? Uh, It seems like you had already gotten a great start with the work in Reveal. You know, it's a
1: great question. And I think the answer says more about the sociology of academic medicine than about the substance. (laughs) But it turns out that genetics is a kind of club, as perhaps all specialties are. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it would have been much harder for me to make the case for some of my uh, ideas that have pushed the envelope uh, from outside that club rather than from inside. So uh, while I could have, I think there were many ways to get the knowledge that I got, it turned out that that becoming a board-certified medical geneticist was uh, a credential that allowed me to stand up in front of groups like the american college of medical genetics and genomics like the american society for human genetics uh, like the european society for human genetics and make the case for some of the things we're going to be talking about in ways i just don't think they would have listened to me if i had not had that credential and that training and essentially been part of the uh, of the trained cadre of specialists that um, uh, that they were.
0: Sure. No, and it makes sense in that context. And I'm also, if you don't mind continuing to peel this onion a little bit, you mentioned that mm-hmm. your work in uh, clinical trials has had a very positive impact on your ability to uh, sort of unlock some things in the, in the world of medical genetics as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure thing. When, when I trained
1: in medical genetics, uh, and it's just a few years ago, I, I finished my training in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, this specialty was still, by and large, a specialty that was consisted of two types of physicians. Okay. One type sees rare patients, sees their families, often pediatric, and takes care of them one by one. And often these are Diseases that don't particularly even have a treatment, or sometimes they are uh, they have a treatment or a set of conditions that you that that you manage. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, um, uh, babies with PKU or babies with um, uh, neurofibromatosis type one. These uh, are, are are not things that um, you know. For the neurofibromatosis, these are not things that you necessarily treat or prevent, but you manage the features and symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was really not part of the lexicon of clinical trials, sorry, let me, let me scratch that and I'll go back. The second type of physician uh, that was in genetics at the time was, was basically a, a genetic scientist, someone who was uh, working in the laboratory, perhaps utilizing a focus in a particular disease to try to understand the molecular etiology of that disease Mm -hmm. Uh, so those were the sort of two kinds of clinicians and clinician scientists that were there but really none of them were or very few of them were were conducting clinical trials what i brought was this intense training in clinical trials and um, what i have been able to do is we'll we'll be talking about with some of my project is ask questions with rigorous methodology that that comes from the clinical trials world such as what is the impact of providing genetic information to ostensibly healthy adults and children, and how do you test that in a randomized clinical trials uh, methodology?
0: Okay, I think that is going to lead us into a very interesting path. I've read some of your recent work, and i i, I want to dive more deeply into that. I think at the moment this is a great time to take a quick break, um, but we are okay. going to be right back with Dr. Robert Green on Data Point. Welcome back to data Point. I'm your host Greg Matthews, and we're here with dr. Robert Green uh, Robert. before we went into the break, you were talking a little bit about medical genetics and We're diving into the impact of being able to do clinical trials of healthy or currently healthy populations, and I'm really curious about that because it's sort of an unusual thing in the world of clinical trials, right? Usually, we're looking for people that have a very specific kind of uh, illness profile, Talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing in clinical trials with healthy populations from a, you know, looking through your eyes as a medical geneticist. Sure thing.
1: You know, um, it's really important to realize that genetics, like most medical specialties, has evolved to diagnose and treat sick people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I came into my training at a time when people were starting to talk about and imagine a world where genetics could be used to prevent illness. It could be used to predict and uh, prevent illness and suffering in the future. And I got really excited about that idea, Mm -hmm. and I I was curious, how could you move from where we are now, which is largely taking care of sick people and diagnosing them, to where we all think we want to go, which is Preserving health, preserving wellness, keeping people healthy, and you know this is extremely hot right now in terms of the precision medicine world, the uh, personalized medicine, the idea mm-hmm. of uh, the right drug at the right time to the right person at the right dosage. All these themes are making their way through the consciousness of medicine, and yet our actual medical care system still is focused on sick people, it's focused on reimbursement for care of sick people, and uh, it's really hard to move this gigantic ship. But I thought that one of the first ways you move a ship like this is you create evidence of benefit and evidence to show that there isn't as much harm as people might think. And in in the genetic testing of healthy people from really the 1990s on, there have been a number of myths that took hold with extraordinary strength and are still taking hold today. One of these myths is that if you give somebody genetic information about their future, you're going to expose them to devastating catastrophic psychological distress. That's myth number one. Myth number two is that people will completely misunderstand what you're trying to tell them. Mm -hmm. And, doctors aren't going to be much better. Doctors who are not trained in genetics are not going to be much better. You can see how this would be a myth that would really pump up the genetic specialist. Only we can, (laughs) can actually understand and interpret this complex information. That's myth number two. Myth number three is that there's no treatment anyway. So what's the point of trying to tell people some of this scary stuff, you know, especially with myth number one and two working against you. And, and, um, Myth number four is that I guess that sort of started with uh, with some of the direct to consumer and consumer facing companies is that the only way to accumulate this evidence is through rigorous academic observation and uh, that you know there is no role, there's no legitimate role, there's no honourable role for consumer facing companies uh, in the production of scientific knowledge. Um, certainly, we don't believe that anymore about pharma, but that has been a, a kind of myth that's reflected in the fierce criticism that these consumer-facing companies got when they first started trying to launch and give people access to their own genomics. Sure. Now, while I was a, an older guy, maybe because I was I was older and already kind of fixed in my ways and wasn't quite as as moldable as a as, a tra- as an older trainee, I, I didn't really buy any of these myths. And I set out with uh, my clinical trials background to try to prove or disprove them. So we have done this, I think, in a series of uh, either observational or randomized clinical trials. So I mentioned the REVEAL study, Mm -hmm. which was our series of randomized clinical trials in which we basically put volunteers through different protocols where they either learned or did not learn their APOE genotype and their risk of developing alzheimer's disease and we we've looked at that as i mentioned from many different angles with lots and lots of nuance we can go into that further if you like we then actually uh about that time the first direct to consumer companies were actually launching and we got the first nih grant to study customers of in a, of direct-to-consumer companies. And we sent surveys to over 2,000 such customers from two different companies, and we tested the myths about whether they were gonna completely misunderstand or whether they were going to do inappropriate things with the information, like mm-hmm. go out and get a whole lot of unnecessary medical testing. Sure. And again, we we looked at a lot of nuances about this, but the bottom line was they not only didn't get upset, uh, they actually understood the information relatively well. They did not go and change their um, pharmaceutical treatments without permission of their doctors. They did not go out and demand a whole lot of extra testing and uh, and a couple of other interesting wrinkles about how they perceived and and held on to their perception of, um, of risk.
0: If yeah, I might, let me ask you a question about these myths, because I find this really fascinating. Um, and I'm going to, very easily play the layman here because that's what I am. Sure. But the the first time that I remember being conscious of uh, a couple of these myths was when uh, Angelina Jolie had her uh, double mastectomy as a result of understanding her genetic profile around the BRCA gene, right? Mm-hmm. What, 2013, 2014, somewhere in that ballpark? 2014, yeah. And it struck me at the time that at least the media coverage of that was very hysterical uh, in terms of supporting myth number one, right? That Mm -hmm. people will be emotionally distraught when they find this. And so I guess I'm really curious about, you know, some of the details that have uh, helped you to debunk that. Um, You know, and it just makes me really curious about, can you tell us any more about what you learned from these people who were participating that would make you feel comfortable stating that that's a myth? In other words, sure. you know, were they getting enough information on the back end to be able to process rationally uh, the results they're getting and what they truly meant? Uh, you know, if you just got a number versus an explanation, if you had access to a medical geneticist or even a genetic counselor versus not. Like, How do how do some of those things impact the studies that you've done? Well, those are exactly the
1: questions we were curious about as well. And that was the fun of designing these studies because we were trying to design rigorous studies that would tease apart those exact questions. Mm. And, and look, I don't want to be cavalier. Uh, it is certainly possible for people who learn that they're carrying uh, a dangerous mutation, particularly one like BRCA, uh, one of the BRCA mutations, to become upset and for this to prey upon their mind and for this to create anxiety. And, uh, and there will be occasional people who, who carry a, a great burden from, from this information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the studies we've done so far with APOE, the ones I mentioned with direct-to-consumer testing and, and, and some others that I'll tell you about in a moment, have actually gone through rigorous clinical trials where we disclosed scary mutations like this to people. Yep. And then we tracked them on validated scales of anxiety, depression, test related distress, if they were children, on uh, whether or not this interfered with parent child bonding, whether this created friction between two parents when this was found out about a child, all the things hmm. that, that people legitimately worry about. And while there were people who became distressed to learn that they or their child was carrying such a mutation, by and large, they managed the emotions quite well. They got through it. The validated scales of anxiety and depression normalized after a few weeks. And uh, we were able to show that what, what, what I think we also really know about people is that they are resilient that they process risk information uh, in ways that allow them to psychologically manage it, and that when they are surrounded uh, with good context and good support, they are managed to do uh, the right thing. You know, they, they, they evaluate their options. They get advice on surveillance, if, if it's a surveillance uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. Now, nothing can take away the You know, the the trouble with talking about BRCA1 and 2 uh, is that part of the prophylactic treatment can be uh, what is essentially uh, traumatic surgery for a woman. Of
0: course. Right.
1: Right. Breast removal, oophorectomies. And so the emotionality around the decision as to whether you will choose to have a mastectomy, and when you might choose to have that. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that that is a scary and terribly, terribly difficult situation for any, mm. any woman. But we've had so many examples of women who, while they struggle with that, and while it was difficult, they were grateful for the information that allowed them to make a choice. Right. Skipping ahead to one of the studies that I hope we'll talk about in a minute, uh, we have found that in our own tertiary care partners biobank, and this is Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital, these Mm -hmm. are volunteers who, who volunteered for our research biobank, half of the people we found to be carrying cancer predisposition genes like BRCA1 and 2 mutations did not know they were carrying them. Okay. More, half of them. So there were, uh, of the total number of people in that we've tested so far who are carrying these, half knew about them and half did not know about them. Okay. Think about those people who did not even know they were carrying a right. BRCA1 mutation or BRCA2 mutation, uh, or, a, or a little bit less uh, controversially, uh, a colon cancer mutation or mm. some other type of cancer mm. mutation. So that they had a chance to think about what they wanted to do in terms of surveillance, what they wanted to, um, how they wanted to protect their health in the future.
0: Sure. Yeah, it gives you the opportunity to say, all right, do I actually want to make some lifestyle changes? Uh, Because those things can have a tremendous impact. Even do something you know you should have been doing anyway. So for
1: example, we had one guy in his 50s who knew he was supposed to start getting colonoscopies like we're all supposed to at age 50. Mm. And he found out he had a mutation that put him at increased risk for colon cancer. It jogged him to do what he was supposed to do anyway, uh, which was go yeah. get his colonoscopy, and guess what? He found a number of uh, lesions that were particularly uh, risky for cancer. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, and and we have, you know, we have videotapes of women who had no idea they were BRCA1 or 2 positive they worked through the when they were told they worked through the, the the process they decided to get a protective mastectomy they got the protective mastectomy and there was cancer already growing there
0: wow uh, that yeah and it that, was I mean... You want to talk you know, about a compelling uh, argument yeah. uh, for doing? But we this found kind of work. a number of, of
1: of these women who, um, you know, were in retrospect so grateful that they now that that does not that does not help um, the the awfulness of facing that choice.
0: Of course, but it
1: it does give us courage on the clinician side to say maybe we should be at least asking people to consider this choice more often than we are. Maybe we shouldn't be terrified of providing this opportunity. I always believe that people have a right to make an informed decision. If they don't want to know, and and many people don't, I think that's totally okay. But they should understand what it is they're they're saying no to.
0: Absolutely. we're going to take another quick break but we are going to be right back with dr robert green on data point you are back on data i'm your host greg matthews with us today is dr robert green uh, robert i wanted to ask you we were talking before the break about some of the incredibly powerful and really empowering uh, decisions that are able to be made when people better understand certain elements of their genetic profile is this an argument for everyone, you know, to do mass genetic testing? And what does that mean for, you know, sort of the business of consumer genomics?
1: You know, that's the question that's really consumed me and my team for the last couple of years. We've launched two big NIH projects. One we've called MedSeq, which is the first project of its kind to sequence and comprehensively interpret over 5,000 genes in apparently healthy adults. Mm. And uh, on, the, on the tail of that, we got separately funded for uh, a massive project called BabySeek, which was the same idea uh, for a lesser a number of genes in newborn babies. Okay. And all of this, Greg, is, is actually trying to ask this question. should everybody be sequenced? If you did sequence everybody and you did it to the best possible quality, best practices that you could possibly do with the most comprehensive interpretation you could possibly do, way more than you would get from anybody in consumer genetics today. Sure. uh, And you took pains to integrate that uh, with primary care physicians who were themselves carefully trained to receive the information, not trained as genetics, but but trained to contextualize the information, what would happen? And would the would there be more benefit than harm? And would and how much would you be costing the healthcare mm-hmm. system? Okay. So that's been the questions for both MedSeq and BabySeek, because you know, we've been predicting for quite some time, maybe decades, oh yes, you know Of course there'll be a time when everybody has their dna sequenced as part of their medical care of course there'll be a time when every newborn baby will be sequenced and comprehensively evaluated for future health purposes and yet here we are 20 years after the drafting of the human genome project and Mm. we are nowhere near that in terms of the day-to-day practice of medicine
0: so my
1: work has been trying to ask these questions about benefit harm, and cost in order to generate the evidence base that could take us to that point.
0: Interesting. And is it possible to talk about any of your findings at this point? It sounds like a study that is... uh, Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned in terms of benefit, harm, cost uh, associated with screening these healthy populations. Well, it's a really
1: tough nut to crack because the benefit is likely to accrue over decades, right? Not just Mm -hmm. in the first six months or the first year. So some of what we've published has been um, the absence of harms, and we've continued to document the absence of harms in adults when they receive uh, genetic risk information, and even the absence of harms in families when a, a newborn baby is sequenced. We have not been able to demonstrate uh, abnormal anxiety, depression, test-related distress, mm-hmm. parental uh, trauma, uh, parental bonding problems, any, any of these things uh, which, which um, people have expected and worried about, we have, uh, we have actually shown that by and large they do not occur, so that's good. We've also been able to track healthcare spending in the first six months or one year in both these studies. And while there is, as you would expect, some increased spending to follow up on mutations that are found, um, it's not very much. And when you evaluate it, it's pretty appropriate. So it's not like people are going out and breaking the healthcare bank when they get
0: genetic risk information. So that, that's also reassuring. And of now, course, with the benefit turn... accruing over years, it's right. entirely possible that that increased cost would be more than offset by the avoidance of you know, exactly. something much more serious. But that benefit
1: is really hard to track. So as a proxy for that benefit, one of the things we've been asking is, okay, these are all healthy people. None of them came to us with a genetic condition. What did we discover? hmm and it's tricky because we didn't discover that they all carry cancer genes or they all carry uh, cardiac predisposition genes. We, we discovered that you know there's uh, a, a remarkable percentage of them that are carrying dominant mutations for a whole bunch of different rare stuff. So in our MedSeq project, and, and you're not gonna believe this, but 20% of our healthy middle-aged adults were carrying a dominant mutation uh, when you looked at 5,000 genes and and really dug into it, and in our BabySeq study, with a much smaller set of genes, more like 1,500 genes, 11% of babies, healthy newborn babies, were carrying a dominant mutation.
0: So what's f- going on? For our listeners that aren't uh, deeply involved in this space, talk about a dominant mutation and what, what that well, actually it, means. It, it means that... Um, If the mutation
1: were to fully manifest, you would expect the child or the adult to develop the disease. Now, we know that these mutations do not always fully manifest. There is a concept called penetrance, which is sort of the probability that if you carry the mutation, you're gonna get the disease. Mm-hmm. And the penetrance, for example, of BRCA1 is around 60 70% okay. in a woman's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of these mutations are super rare. A lot of these genes and conditions are super rare. And so we don't even actually know the exact penetrance. So you're giving somebody ambiguous information. You're saying, Mr. Smith, um, we have found a mutation which is clearly deleterious and for a disease in which your cardiac walls get thickened, and you can have sudden cardiac death. Okay. And uh, But there's something we can do about that. We can check your heart with an echocardiogram and see if it's starting to thicken. And if it is, we can give you certain medications that will slow that down. And if you start to have something that looks like your heart is acting up with arrhythmias, we can either give you other medications or put in an implantable defibrillator to save your life. So there's a lot of options once you know somebody's at risk. There are no options when you don't know that somebody's at that's risk. Right.
0: That's exactly right. And,
1: and that's, that's, the, that's the heart of the problem. And, and here's what really surprised me, Greg. Um, in both groups, a quarter of these healthy people, when we circled back and looked at their... Physical examination or their mm. laboratory testing, in light of the DNA change, yep, a quarter of them already had uh, features of the disease underway. Wow! And they hadn't been recognized.
0: Now that is fantastic. It, it, yeah, such a it, that that is it's really a remarkable statistic, and I'm still I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around it. But I think the implications of that are enormous. In terms of being able to, I mean, this is this is something that makes me think, wow, personalized medicine or precision medicine actually is possible in our, you know, in my lifetime. Um,
1: I think so. <laughs> you know, the cynics would say, oh yeah, but you didn't prove that discovering that DNA change actually made them healthier. You haven't sure. followed them for 10 years and proven that, they, you know, that their morbidity and mortality was improved. And that's true. That's a really hard study to do on a three-year NIH grant. That
0: but it, um,
1: <laughs> but, but it, it certainly implies that these individuals um, would have more knowledge of their risk factors. Some would have explanations for things they otherwise would never have even known were there. Mm -hmm. Let me give you a couple of examples. There was a baby that had uh, a mutation in the gene elastin, which can cause some narrowing of the aorta, the big blood vessel leaving the heart. And uh, it can get really bad if it gets very narrow. Mm -hmm. That baby had no abnormalities on their physical examination uh, at all Uh, but when uh, we found this dna change and did a follow-up echocardiogram that aorta was already narrowing it wasn't causing any harm to the baby but it was already narrowing so now that baby can be monitored prospectively to see where that is and whether it's going to continue to narrow in the future
0: and that's Um, not Yeah, I think one of the criticisms we often hear is that, you know, we're, we're throwing, you know, all of these diagnostics at people and just making, uh, you know, making the diagnosticians rich in the process. This is talking about being able to do a very specific diagnostic and not a particularly expensive one, I would imagine. Correct. It's going to make a life and death difference for this human being. Well, it could make
1: a life and death difference that's That's the tricky part. you know will that baby uh, as as that baby grows, will that aorta continue to narrow, and if it continues to narrow and you have foreknowledge of that, will their care be different, and if their care is different, will their life be ex- extended or be qualitatively different. So those are hard questions to answer, but it seems to me that the knowledge is the first step and you can't even ask the rest of the questions unless you have that knowledge. So a lot of people ask, where can you get your own genome sequenced if you're interested in doing so? And are we ready to do this? And one thing people really need to understand, Greg, is is the difference between most consumer-facing genomic testing right now and what we mean by comprehensive DNA sequencing. So, mm-hmm. for example, 23andMe, uh, I think, has done a good job of the product that they create and of educating people and showing people what it means, but it is array-based testing. It's a $99 test that looks at a bunch of markers along your DNA. It does mm-hmm. not sequence every letter of the disease-associated genes. So it's way different than what we're talking about when we're talking about sequencing. Sure. Um, it, here, here at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, we started the world's first preventive genomics clinic, which is a place where adults and even their children can come and get sequenced uh, comprehensively uh, in a clinical venue. And there is some out of pocket cost because insurance doesn't cover this yet, but the, the cost has come down to between a couple hundred dollars and a couple thousand dollars, depending on the uh, comprehensiveness of of what you want to do. And uh, I've had the privilege of co-founding a company called Genome Medical, which is a telegenomics medical practice. And uh, anyone can go online to genomemedical.com and uh, request a consultation without a long wait and with an easy interface. And then if, if they and their clinician decide that they're interested in testing for a particular indication or just to be screened, uh, they can get it done in a responsible way and get it medically contextualized in a responsible way. So um, there's a whole spectrum of ways out there now from the array-based companies for $99 to uh, genome medical, which is an actual medical practice where people can get themselves evaluated for any genetics question that they might
0: have. That is fascinating, and it actually it, it's an answer to a question that I've been asking myself ever since talking to people like um, James Liu at at Helix about the difference between or the jump, I guess, between you know ancestry uh, and you know studying ancestry and actually doing medical genetic studies it has it has seemed like a pretty big leap but uh Mm -hmm. what you've described sounds like a fantastic option uh for people who are ready to start moving in that direction yeah and i think
1: eventually the kind of people who have purchased consumer facing testing early on these are curious people they're going to want i think what they really wanted was more comprehensive evaluation of their DNA, at least many of them. And I think that uh, laboratories are going to be offering that more and more. Uh, Consumer-facing labs are going to be like Color and Helix are expanding their offering, Um, but they are not medical practices. They are laboratories. So if you really want um, a medical contextualization of your information, uh, you need to talk to your own doctor or genetic counselor or, a telegenomics practice like Genome Medical, which can either interpret results you already have or help you get exactly the results that you want from this pretty confusing universe of genetic testing that's out there. Yeah.
0: Well, for our listeners, I'm going to be posting links to uh, Genomes to People as well as Genome Medical uh, in our show notes. So don't worry about pulling off the road to write this down. You'll be able to check the show notes uh, and get all the links there Uh, to connect to Dr. Green and his work. Robert, thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful for you being willing to share with us today some of the incredibly exciting things that you're doing.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.